So the Sistine Chapel, I think we would all agree, is one of the gifts of a, just a masterpiece of artwork um, that we have in the world today. And when Michelangelo began that, it took about four years for him to finish painting. And when he was done, it was 1521, and so the chapel immediately began to be put into use. Well, um, the, the, the way that light was brought into the space was through candles. And so the candles would light the space up, but it would also send smoke up to the ceiling. And so the soot would rise and over time began to dull the, to dull the, the artwork. And so um, you add about 400 years worth of soot and dust and grime, it became time to restore the Sistine Chapel. So restorative artists began their work uh, 1984 through 1999 to restore the, the technicolor um, of the original painting. And actually Greg and I went to Italy for our honeymoon and we were there in 1998 and we saw the restoration project in process and it was pretty amazing actually. It was pretty amazing. Well, uh, before the restoration took place, art critics all agreed that Michelangelo was a genius for composition. So, I mean, just to think, who, who would think of creating this relationship between God and humanity by having Adam reach out, yearning for um, God, where God's already pointing God's finger towards him? already yearning for Adam. Well, I know who would do that. A Methodist 250 years before his time would do that because this image actually is a perfect depiction of our understanding of provenient grace, of God reaching out and longing for us before we're even aware. But we know Michelangelo wasn't a Methodist because Methodist wasn't a thing in his time. But pre-restoration, in spite of um, the belief that Michelangelo was an expert in com um, composition, they felt like his coloring, his colorization was just mediocre. The colors were dull, they were monochromatic, they were just blah. <laughs> but then the restoration um, restored the beautiful, um, almost spring-like palette the bright yellow, the pale pink, the, the beautiful shades of green, the sky blue. And then it was in that moment when the creator's work was restored to its original, to its, its beauty and to its goodness, that people had to begin to think a little bit differently about Michelangelo. So I think that we... Um, experience this similar dynamic today. That for many of us, the years of grime and dust and um, dirt and darkness from our life has shaded in, has prevented us from being able to see the, the goodness of God. The goodness of God, that God's character has become blah or mediocre or for some of us, it feels even dark at times. We no longer feel deeply that um, truly through Christ, we have a good father. That through God's truth, 
from the word of God, from God's um, presence through the Holy Spirit, through the love of other Christians, all ways that we experience God's truth, that God can begin to work restoration of God's creation before our very eyes. So we can see the true colors of God's brilliant goodness. I wonder, are you in need of a little visual restoration? So recently we spent a lot of time talking about Next Steps, our, um, our, our discipleship initiative, and it's been so exciting to be able to talk about that. Um, but as we turn the corner and begin the se season of Lent, we start a new sermon series that has a very different feel and a very different focus. It's normal for us during the season of Lent to turn more inward, to look at um, discipleship, actually, but to look at our relationship with God, to understand more deeply what it is that happened on the cross and why that is important to us. And so as our planning team was trying to figure out what do we need to be focused on that might help us draw closer to God, we realized that a lot of us, a lot of us struggle with the, the, the issue and the practice of trust. We live in a world, don't we, where um, it is so hard to trust, that people are so skeptical. We don't trust one another. We really don't trust institutions. We don't trust politics. Many do not trust the church anymore. And all of that affects how we trust or don't trust God. And so that's what we want to focus on for these next few weeks is the, the importance of learning to maybe retrust God or to just at least practice, uh, strengthen our practice of trusting regularly. Because we know trust is extremely hard to build, but it is so easy to break. Well, you've heard me say many times that um, God, uh, Jesus gives us, essentially uh, breaks down all of, of, of what we are supposed to do into two concepts, two commands. To love God with all of our heart and to love one another, to love our neighbors, ourselves. It is a vertical relationship with God. It is a horizontal relationship with one another. And those are the two things that we need to be tending to. Well, I think uh, we're really good at putting focus on how we love one another. But during this season of Lent, we want to really put our attention and our focus on that vertical relationship of loving God. Wesley would call this um, the, the personal piety um, with God and social holiness or the social gospel with one another. Um, but I want to invite us to focus, to keep our eye on God. Um, I want to invite you as you hear the scripture text and the stories to really look and see what is God doing here? What can I learn about the character of God, of who God is? What is God doing in this scripture? We believe the more we know and understand about the character of God, the deeper we're able to build our trust in God the Creator, Jesus the Savior, and the Holy Spirit, the Comforter and Advocate. So I'm going to start right out of the gate, and I'm going to ask you to um, really, as you listen to this story, to keep your eye, to focus your attention on what God is doing in this first scripture text. 
Um, we learned in the pastor's roundtable that this is one where it is really easy to focus on humanity and what we're doing and miss seeing the beauty of what God's doing, God's, God's important work here. So here are these selected verses from Genesis 2 and 3, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. The snake was the most intelligent, or some say crafty, of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man replied, I heard your sound in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the snake tricked me and I ate. The Lord God made the man and his wife leather clothes and dressed them. The Lord God said, the human being has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, so he doesn't stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, which was also in the garden, and eat and live forever, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to farm the fertile land from which he was taken. He drove out the human to the east of the garden of Eden. He stationed winged creatures wielding flaming swords to guard the way to the tree of life. Friends, this is the word of God for all God's people. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Amen. One thing, just one thing. That was all God asked of Adam and Eve just to not eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Everything else in the garden is yours. 
But before we get too caught up in the snake and Eve deciding to eat the fruit and share with Adam and the beginning of human sin, let's shift our attention back to God. By the way, did you notice that in no place did I ever use the word apple? Um, thanks to Greek mythology, with a very similar story where the forbidden fruit is an apple, and to the Latin translation of the Bible, where the word for apple and the word for evil, evil are very, very close. Uh, somewhere along the way, the, the image of the apple began to creep into art and preaching and literature as the forbidden fruit. So there you go, a little, little nugget. But humans eat that forbidden fruit, and we know trouble begins. But here's the deal with the story. The problem is not so much about the fruit itself. The problem is not so much about what the fruit stands for, this knowledge of good and evil, whatever that exactly means. The problem is, is about what's in our best interest. Who decides what's in our best interest? The problem with eating the fruit is that at that moment, we decided that we were more capable of deciding what is best for us. And that was the boundary that Adam and Eve crossed. And that's one of the greatest challenges that we have today regarding our vertical relationship with God, that trusting ourselves versus trusting God, having our best interest in heart. That tree in the middle of the garden and the command not to eat from it, well, it was to define the limit between God and humanity. And it was a boundary to remind us that we are, in fact, not God. And it was a boundary that we crossed by exerting our free will. So instead of honoring God's will by willingly refraining from the forbidden fruit, we exerted our free will. We chose to eat in spite of God's command. And to be clear, if humanity didn't have the choice and the ability to eat from that fruit, then the command would not have been put in place to begin with. And the lesson quickly learned after one bite of the fruit is that God absolutely did have our best interest in mind. And that the knowledge from that fruit would cause harm and do more trouble than any good. That if we look at this passage through God's eyes, though, we actually see signs all along the way that God's truth spoken to Adam and Eve was a word of care, of companionship, and love. For instance, did you notice these details when I read the scripture? First of all, God saddled, settled settled Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and gave them everything they needed. Everything they needed. Full access to everything in the garden, but asked that one thing. And God issued just that one command, and nothing about that command was out of proportion, was repressive or unreasonable. But one of my favorite parts of the story is when God comes to have that evening walk with Adam and Eve, and it sounds like a regular thing. God takes on human form in order to build relationship with them. That God was seeking them out just to spend time with them. It's beautiful. But when God realizes, first of all, that they're hiding and that uh, 
God realizes what they've done because of the pathetic fig leaf clothes that they have on. God gives them a chance to answer for themselves, right? He doesn't react with immediate anger. He wants to listen and hear what it is they have to say. And honestly, God is mostly disappointed. But God knew the risks of free will. God knows the risks of free will. And after all, in Genesis 1, we were created good, but we were not created perfect. We were not created perfect. But then before God issues the final banishment from the garden to a more difficult life that was going to be the consequence for the choice, um, God does the most compassionate and amazing thing. God becomes a tailor. And God sews together clothes of leather, far better quality than they had made for themselves. Then when God does send them out of the garden, Eden. Scripture says God sent them to a fertile farm so at least the land would produce for them fairly easily. All of these details together paint a picture of God that is loving, that is relational, that is compassionate and caring. And when we consider these characteristics of God, then it is easier to trust that God's motive from the very beginning with that one command was always meant to protect Adam and Eve, not test them and not limit them. Maybe if Adam and Eve had been paying attention, maybe if we pay attention to these characteristics of God, then maybe we would be more trusting that God's truth that is offered to us is only offered to us with our best interests in mind. Because after all, God was trying to make life easier for us by preventing us from suffering the burden of sin and evil. What is good? What is evil? But after eating the fruit, then Adam and Eve, and essentially we, had to decide for ourselves what was in our best interest. Much harder God could no longer do that for us. And one of the consequences of that knowledge was to then feel and see shame, which led to them trying to hide from God and to keep secrets from God, things Adam and Eve had never experienced before. But trusting in God's truth can help us overcome our own shame, our own secrets, our own burdens, our own sin, because we trust the truth we trust that God's truth is in our best interest at heart. And y'all, that was the whole point of Jesus. So in December of 2016, a ride at Knott's Berry Farm, a park out in California, uh, became stuck. People became stuck 148 feet in the air. So there were 20 people up there, including seven children. And firefighters arrived trying to figure out how are we going to get these folks down. And they put up massive ladder up, but of course the ladder was too short. It's like trying to change light bulbs in this space. The ladders are too short. And so they finally realized the only way they were going to be able to get these folks down was by using a, a, one of their massive ropes and um, tying the folks harnessed to just a single rope. So Fire Captain Larry Kurt said, I know y'all, it sounds so scary, 
But we have very, very strong ropes that have 9,000 pounds capacity of, of breaking strength on them. And he was building their faith and their confidence of those that were trapped. He's given them information that if they believed would help to allay their fears. But it was going to be up to each person to believe what he said and to place their trust in these firefighters. <coughs> so let's zero in on one youngster and we'll call him Luke. Seven-year-old Luke is old enough to feel the fear of looking down 148 feet to the ground and to look at this one rope. But the firefighter looked in his eyes and said, Luke, with a very steadying voice, trust me, I won't let you go. Your life is very, very precious to me. And I will have you down before you know it. So Luke listens to him and he thinks about this very, very strong rope. And he believes the firefighter's reassuring words. And he trusts him completely. And it is through Luke's trust in the firefighter that brings the hope of getting to safety. It is his trust that the firefighter does indeed care for him and that the firefighter's primary goal and desire is to bring him to safety down on the ground. But ultimately, it's Luke's choice to reach out and grab the rope. The firefighter can't make him. And by the way, Luke and all 20 of the passengers were safely lowered to the ground that night just before 10 p.m. But you see, God offers us a very strong rope in order to guide us to safety. Will we trust it? Will we trust God? Because this rope is God's truth. And we find God's truth in the powerful stories and teaching of Scripture. We find God's truth in the revelation of Jesus Christ through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. We find God's truth in the movement of the Holy Spirit in and among us today. Will we grab hold of that rope and trust? Will we trust that God's compassion and desire for companionship in nature desires only what is in our best interest, not what is in God's best interest? Will we trust that we can find in God's truth for our lives boundaries that help us thrive, guidelines that help us learn and tough love and wisdom that is never more than we can handle, but will only strengthen us. Trust. Mm. There is so much more to say and so much more to explore. And I pray that you will join us next week as we continue to explore trusting, particularly in God's provision for us. But the rope of truth is dangling right in front of you. Will you grab hold? It might feel a little scary, but we can and should trust God because our lives are very, very precious to God. Never forget that truth. Amen. <laughs>